0: Well good morning, everyone. We have been uh, reading Mark's Gospel together, and in his story, this is where we are. We're in Jesus last week, uh, before his arrest and before his crucifixion. And over the last several Sundays, we've um, seen that Jesus has just spent this long day in the temple courts asking, answering a litany of questions from the religious elites. And so now, uh, in contrast to those very public moments, Mark 13, which is what we're going to look at this morning, tells us about what happened privately when Jesus and his disciples left the temple that evening. So we're going to do something this morning that we don't usually do. We're going to talk uh, together about a whole chapter at once. We're going to do that because it is a solid uh, section of teaching from Jesus, and it's really hard to think about all of the pieces of it without also at the same time keeping the whole in our heads. Uh, And this teaching, I have to say, also happens to be some of the most difficult to understand of Jesus' teaching, in part because he uses language that we call apocalyptic language. So we're not going to be able to talk about uh, every part of it, but I will read it all so that we can hear every part of it. So you can settle in as I read Mark 13. It's printed in your order of worship or you can follow along in a Bible, or you you can just listen as I read from Mark 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we ask now that this thing that we just sang together, that we would find it to be true in our experience, that this word that we have read and heard, this this teaching from Jesus, that we would find it to be the wisdom from on high, that we would find it to be truth. Meet us in whatever place we find ourselves this morning, those of us who are in faith and those of us who are out of faith and those of us who aren't sure where we are, those of us who are ready and happy to hear from you, those of us who don't even know what those words mean, Father, meet us and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I uh, I have lived in Chicago for a long time now, and uh, I have to tell you, over the years, there are a handful of views of the downtown skyline that I have just fallen in love with. Um, the first view of the downtown skyline that I fell for is where Lakeshore Drive crosses the river, Just south of Navy Pier. Um, Looking east, seeing that ribbon, or sorry, looking west and seeing that ribbon of water flow through some of the greatest architecture in the world, that is a sight that will never, ever get old to me. I also really like looking north from the the inbound Dan Ryan uh, at about Roosevelt, especially at night when the city is completely lit up. That's when our great city looks most like Sandberg's city with the broad shoulders to me. But there is a view that took me years to stumble across that I have really fallen for lately, and that is looking east from Central Avenue, uh, just south of Grand. You can see pretty much the entire skyline from north to south from there because the road rises up over the Galewood Railroad Yards, and If you go there and look at the city at sunset the city looks completely on fire with this shimmering orange blaze. So I'm sure many of you have your own favorite views of the city or maybe your own favorite building that gets lit up at certain times of the day in certain ways and if you do, then it's really easy for you to relate to that moment that we just read about when one of those disciples, just as an aside, as they're leaving the temple after that long day, says, look, Jesus, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I got to tell you, I hear that comment and I think to myself, this is, this is uh, just a moment to have a breather after this long and tense day that they've had. It's a moment for them just to relax and let their guard down. Look, Jesus, isn't this place amazing? And of course, it was true. The temple didn't just dominate the first century skyline of Jerusalem. It was the first century skyline of Jerusalem. It was this enormous, ornate structure. Many of the stones were covered in gold, and those that weren't were apparently blindingly bright. People said that when the sun shone on the temple, it was like a bright fire that could be seen from miles and miles away. One ancient historian called it a mountain of white marble. I mean, it was impressive. And the pride that the people felt for it was only deepened because it wasn't just a piece of architecture. It was the center of their national life. It was the center of their identity. And so Jesus, from probably what felt like out of nowhere, says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that won't be thrown down. I mean, just like that, without any warning, Jesus tells them, that this temple is going to be destroyed. This thing that is at the heart of their capital city, this thing that more importantly is at the heart of their identity, it is going to be utterly destroyed. So it's understandable, right, that once they get out of the city proper, Peter and James and John and Andrew come to Jesus on the down low and they ask him more about this stuff. They just want to know two things. When is this going to happen and what is the sign that will come so that we know it's about to happen? What's the heads up so that we can start looking for this to happen? They just want to know so that they can be ready for this horrific thing when it happens. Talking about the end of the temple for them is like talking about the end of the world. So they asked Jesus, and the rest of the chapter is Jesus' answer to their question. So before we talk about some of the specifics of that, I just want to say two things about Jesus' teaching here. The first one is probably the most obvious one, and that is that Jesus doesn't talk here like he normally talks to them. His language becomes elevated and exalted. It's filled with imagery, more imagery than he usually uses, and he doesn't stop to explain it. His language is evocative. It is filled with allusions to the prophets of the Old Testament. And all of this might seem really strange to us, like a little piece of the book of Revelation has been spliced into this story that Mark's telling. But you need to know that it wouldn't have been weird to the disciples Because there was a long history in Judaism of talking about cataclysmic events or difficult events with language just like this. And that leads to the second thing I want to say about Jesus' teaching, and that is that he wasn't trying to confuse them or confuse us. He was trying to be helpful and deeply, deeply hopeful for them and for us. So almost all of what Jesus is going to say next is going to be about what will happen to them and what will happen around them in the years before the temple gets destroyed. There is one part, though. One part, verses 24 through 27. It's the fifth paragraph there in the printed order of worship that starts with, But but in those days. That teaching is something completely different. Jesus throws a curveball there and we will come back to it later. So history tells us that Rome captured Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. It's around 35 or 40 years after Jesus said those things. So what Jesus teaches here is mainly for that first generation of Christians and several themes emerge in Jesus teaching. And they repeat themselves. So that's what I want us to talk about first. And I'll just give you the heads up that it will feel and sound a bit like a history lesson, but be patient. Because at the end, we'll get to what this means for people like us. So the first theme that keeps popping up in what Jesus taught is this. Watch out for the glory hounds. That's where he starts, in fact, in verse 5, when he says, See to it that nobody leads you astray. He tells them in the coming years, listen, there's going to be all kinds of people who are going to come and say that they are really the true king of the world. They are really the Messiah. Jesus says in verse 22 that false prophets and false Christs are going to creep out from under every rock, and they're going to try and lead you astray. So Jesus says, be on guard against these people. And it's simply a matter of history that Jesus was right about this. Just a few years after this, in A.D. 40, the emperor Caligula, who you probably have heard about, was unhinged in so many ways. He made it known that he wanted to build a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. Even though Caligula didn't follow through on this threat, here's what what's happened. Just the threat of that activated this group of people called the zealots some of you might know that even among Jesus disciples there was a zealot and they get activated and they get animated at just the threat of this happening and as a result they gain a ton of influence over the people and then in AD 66 this full-on war breaks out against Rome and the zealots actually take over the temple and they start running everything for the nation. And their philosophy was victory through sustained, horrible violence. Lots of people got behind them. These, these are the kinds of people that Jesus was warning his friends about. And that leads to the other theme that I want to talk about, the second one in Jesus' teaching, and that is that violence and suffering are going to be all around you. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus talks about nation rising up against nation and wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. And later in verses 17 through 20, he says this, this run up to the destruction of the temple is going to be the worst for the most vulnerable of people like moms and those who are nursing children. It's going to be some of the worst trouble the world's ever seen, Jesus says. And then in verse 14, he talks about this thing called the abomination of desolation. And that was just a well-known metaphor from the Old Testament book of Daniel about something that was pinned to this Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes, something he had done in Jerusalem about 150 years before Jesus' day. Antiochus had sacked Jerusalem And he put up a statue of Zeus in the temple, desecrating it. Jesus says, listen, when you see that kind of thing happen again, you better run for the hills and don't stop for your coat. And all of this stuff went down too. The four-year war with Rome was absolutely horrific for the people in Jerusalem. It was hard for me to read and think about the things that the people under siege in Jerusalem had to go through, the things they had to resort to. And the capstone of it all was when this Jesus metaphor of the abomination comes to fruition. The temple gets destroyed and Caesar's Roman banner is unfurled over the ruins. And that leads to the third theme in Jesus' teaching that keeps coming up again. The last one I want us to talk about is that he calls his followers to be faithful in the midst of all of this violence, in the midst of all of this trouble. He calls them to be faithful when they're persecuted. He he tells those four guys that are listening to him that evening, he says, you're going to be delivered over to councils. You're going to be put on trial. You're going to be beaten. And people are going to hate you because you follow me. And You can read about all of this stuff in the book of Acts. All of this happened to these guys and to lots of Christians in those early days. Jesus doesn't want them to be surprised by any of this, so he tells them ahead of time, and all of these things happened. Jesus said, listen, this generation isn't going to pass away before all of these things happen," And he was right, and they were not surprised. Okay, so what does all of this mean? for you and me, right here, today, right now. Well, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Jesus says to his friends, and it's worth thinking about. I mean, think of the first thing he said, watch out for the glory hounds. I mean, when has this ever not been wise? And in this small world that we live in, that is always tuned in and turned on, that is always connected to one another, I think maybe this is even a bigger danger for us than it was for them. It is easier than it ever has been for us to coalesce around leaders of all stripes. I'm talking about politicians and entertainers and artists and academics and preachers. It's never been easier for us to coalesce around leaders of all kinds of types and stripes because they offer this kind of promise that we want to hear. They give us this seductive vision for the good life that is far less than the good life that we were created for. To us, I think Jesus would say the very same thing that he said to his friends sitting on the Mount of Olives that night. Be on guard. Watch out. What about Jesus' teaching about patience in the midst of suffering and courage in the face of persecution? I mean, we, we need to hear this stuff as much as they did then, that night. We live in a culture that regularly sells its soul to create the illusion that there is no suffering we cannot insulate ourselves from. There is no suffering that we cannot protect ourselves from. Just Friday, just this last Friday, a second school forfeited a football game that they were supposed to play against a school in East Garfield Park. They wouldn't come and play. Why? To create the illusion of safety. (laughs) I don't need to tell you that big parts of our economy are given over to this notion that we don't have to grow old. (laughs) That we can stave even that suffering off if we buy the right stuff, if we do the right things. We can customize our news feeds. We can customize our phones to read about the things we want to read about and filter everything else out. We can distract ourselves from suffering with a million things. And we do. But Jesus' teaching about all that stuff is really stubborn and there is no social media setting that can block it out. He says we live in a world that's fallen and the solutions for suffering all require us to move towards suffering and not away from suffering. Every solution for the suffering that we face is to move into it, to move towards it, not to move away from it and this is what Jesus did. The New Testament is clear about this. Jesus moves towards the places where the pain and the shame and the sadness are. In church, he still does. That's where Jesus goes. And of course, there are Christians all over the world who read Jesus' words about persecution and trials and beatings. And it doesn't sound alien to them. It sounds like yesterday to them. It sounds like tomorrow for them. I'm talking about Christians in Egypt and in Syria, Christians in North Korea, Christians in Nigeria, and in a lot of other places. I want you to know that when they read these words, sometimes in secret for fear of their lives, it brings them hope that they are not alone. And when we hear these words, it should cause us to pray for them. For these sisters and brothers all over the world, that they would endure to the end. So now, let me go back to that curveball I mentioned earlier. There's this one place in that chapter, and you probably heard it while I was reading it, where the language just kind of slips out. And it moves past the run-up to the destruction in the temple. The language gets downright cosmic. And Jesus starts talking about himself. It's in verses 24 through 27. So where Jesus says, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun is going to be darkened and the moon won't give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens. That's cataclysm language. Those are powerful metaphors. And I don't think Jesus is talking about the end of the temple here. I think he is talking about the end of time as we know it. He says on that day, the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his people from the four winds of the earth. Jesus is talking about here what we as Christian people affirm when we say the Apostles' Creed. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Or later, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's what Jesus is talking about there. He's saying that the world as we know it will not last forever. That this fallen and broken place that is full of trouble will not be fallen and will not be broken and will not be full of trouble forever. There is a day coming when the justice and the peace that the world was made to flourish under will be restored. They will be restored. Wrongs will be righted. Evil will be put away. All of the sad things, as old Tolkien said it, will come untrue. And tears will be wiped away. That is the final movement of the Christian story where God reconciles everything to himself. And so it's good for people like us in a place like this to ask when we hear about that day, how do we get ready for that moment? (laughs) And the New Testament is clear and Jesus is clear. We, We get ready for that moment not by being a really good person or trying to be a really good person. We become ready for that moment by being a part of that story by faith, by following Jesus in faith by believing that the one who always goes to the places of pain and shame and suffering has in fact gone to the places of our own pain and shame and suffering. And through his cross and resurrection and ascension has made a way for us to be forgiven and restored into the people that we were created to be. And I also think it's good for people like us in a place like this to hear about this day that's coming and wonder, what are we supposed to do between now and then? What's our vocation? What's our calling in this world? That's why I love that parable that Jesus tells at the end about this master who leaves his house for a journey and puts all of his servants in charge. I mean, they aren't supposed to obsess about when he's coming back. They're not supposed to hunker down and do nothing. They have got a bunch of of work to do. So they're supposed to keep busy taking care of the house and they're supposed to be awake. And this church is where we find our place in the story. So let's keep busy. We keep busy in concrete acts of love for our neighbors. Let's keep busy in going out into the mission, into the places where we find ourselves. Going out into mission in this beautiful but broken city and going out in mission into this beautiful and broken world. Let's keep busy in being faithful to the things that we have been called to as individuals, as friends, as parents, as children, as workers, as students. Let's be faithful and work on those things because when we do that, this is what we're doing. We are making a visible expression of this prayer that we pray. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's good for us to stay busy with those things because one day, that kingdom will come. Stay awake. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we can relate to these four guys who came to you and just said, what is coming for us? What is our future? And Father, we ask that you would help us to have whatever it takes, the faith that it takes to believe that that day is coming. And in the present, to be people who are busy and awake. To be people who move towards suffering and not away from it. To be people who are busy making your kingdom appear here on earth as it is in heaven father do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us and we pray it in jesus name amen